So I'm not intending to keep you overly long this morning, but I would like to reflect a little bit more upon the theme of being mindful of the mind, mindful of what is going on in your mind. As you know, in Buddhist teaching, this is where the Buddha put so much emphasis that, yes, being mindful of the body, being mindful of the breathing, are places where we really do learn some of the primary skills of mindfulness in terms of calming the process down, in terms of illuminating what is actually taking place, in terms of learning to have intentional and sustained attention, But many of the lessons we learn within the context of breathing and body are, of course, lessons that we're really encouraged to bring into the processes of our mind because this is where so much of the construction of our world occurs, so much of where the construction of our sense of self occurs. And, of course, it is within the mind that the mind becomes the the messenger for enacting habitual patterns of confusion and distress. So there's much weight given to knowing what it means to liberate the mind. And bear in mind when we speak about mind here, it's interchangeable with heart. So we're learning to liberate the heart from suffering and its causes. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha pointed to this very, very specifically when he said, all experience is led by mind, preceded by mind, made by mind, that with the mind we make the world. All that I am is preceded by mind led by mind, made by mind. All that I am arises with the mind. So very powerful statements, really asking us to to attend to, to take care of what the mind is doing. What the mind is doing moment to moment. You know, in in the Tibetan tradition they're saying that This mind, this body, does the bidding of the wholesome and the unwholesome, the skillful and the unskillful. That used unwisely, this mind, this body, tethers us to samsara, to cycles of distress. That used wisely, this mind, this body, is a raft to freedom. So what we see being mirrored in our minds, of course, are our capacities for kindness, patience, generosity, insight. But we also see being mirrored in our minds also our capacities for confusion and ill will, um, despair, distress. So... I think it is really helpful and you know to to really acknowledge or or to reflect upon what do we mean by mind 
A lot of it seems to be happening underneath the levels of consciousness, doesn't it? This is kind of stream of events, images, commentary, you know, that we often kind of sort of really only wake up to what is happening in our minds when we get into sort of extremes of reactivity or, you know, shame or blame. And suddenly, you know, we talk about mind almost with a capital letter. You know, my mind, my mind, as if it's somehow this independent entity. But as we do, when we do, as we do in practice, and really slow down the process, contemplate what is going on in the mind much more closely, well, we do see, of course, that it, it, the, the mind is not a thing. It is not an entity. It's not an object. It's not a noun. That mind is better referred to in the verb form. That we are minding. Moment to moment, minding is happening. Minding is happening. It's a process. I think if you look, you know, I think we would agree with this when we kind of examine really the nature of our own minds. We see we don't have one mind. We don't even have a reliable mind. You know, we can't get up in the morning and decide I'm going to have this kind of mind today and not that kind of mind today. We see how much this process of minding is being shaped moment to moment by other events that are arising by events that are arising in the body, by memories, by feelings, by associations, by contact. This process of minding is occurring. This is the process, the shaping process that we are asked to understand. That all experiences led by mind, preceded by mind, made by mind, moment to moment. Now, one of, of course, the effects of being more mindful is actually to cultivate a a disidentification with mental process. Not dismissal, not even detachment, but simply disidentification with mental process is so crucial in the path of liberating the mind to be able to see the process of minding without the addition of I am. I am sad. I am angry. I am upset. I am getting somewhere. I am getting nowhere. I am this. Because we can see that the construction of our world moment to moment is also the construction of self moment to moment. So we're starting to look underneath those kind of statements or assertions that this is the way I am, this is the way the world is, this is the way you are, to actually instead begin to disidentify, to begin to be able to see a thought as a thought. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? To see a thought as a thought. It does sound simple. And yet we're often far more on the other extreme that my thoughts are telling me the truth about the world. My thoughts are telling me about the truth about you. My thoughts are telling me the truth about myself. 
about who I am, with all its kind of then ongoing and uh, following kind of reactivity and emotional contractedness. So this capacity to see a thought as a thought is remarkable. It's remarkable. It takes a lot of calmness, takes a lot of curiosity, takes a good deal of investigation, takes a good deal of mindfulness. And yet the, the difference between seeing a thought as a thought and seeing a thought as a description, unassailable description of reality, the difference between those two is just immense. One is often a place of suffering. One is often a place of freedom. So let us look at how do we get to that place? How do you get to that place where, where we arrive, these arrival places where we say, I am, you are, the world is? Hmm? Because that's the tail end of a process. That's the tail end of a process. That's the kind of arrival piece that will last for a little bit of time, but not, you know, not forever. But how do we get there? Well, we see this sort of curious interaction, at the, at this mandala of different ingredients, different components occurring within consciousness moment to moment. Now, probably the most accessible one is to see the interaction between mental states and thoughts. To see the interaction between mental states and thoughts is where the third and the fourth foundation of mindfulness really come together. Because the third foundation of mindfulness deals very specifically with mental states, including our emotional states. The fourth foundation of mindfulness very much includes the cognitive element, the thoughts that are born of mental states. Now, probably this has already been talked about, but I just want to revisit it, that our thoughts are always aligned with the mental state that precedes them. That's just a simple formula that's so important to recognize. If we have a mental state of aversion, we do not have thoughts of loving kindness. We have thoughts of irritability, you know, frustration, tension. We do not have thoughts of loving kindness or generosity. Thoughts are shaped, thoughts are flavored by the preceding mental state. So important to acknowledge that because that is so much part of building our world. And you've seen this, I'm sure, happen how many times so far in the past week? You know, you, you have a mental state, you know, your emotional state, you're a little edgy, you're a little irritable, you know. Well, what is going right today? Nothing. You know, it's raining, it's too cold, you know, people are too noisy, you know, the food is no good, you know. You can see the mental states because you can see the mental state makes perception very selective and colored. And then, of course, those thoughts feed back into the mental state. When I have, when if I'm a little irritated and I have, you know, 2,000 irritable thoughts, it actually does not alleviate the mental state of irritability. It actually strengthens it. So this kind of closed loop is set up where mental states are giving birth to certain flavors of thought patterns. Those thought patterns are in turn reinforcing the mental state. And we walk around that loop a few times and then pretty soon we're getting to the point where we say, I am so miserable. 
But then that thought, of course, simultaneously creates the world. All experience led by mind. The world arises with our thoughts. I am so miserable. You are so miserable. The world is so miserable. Well, there we have it. We're just making this up as we go along. <laughs> We're making a lot of this up as we go along. And it's not even that we are making it up. It is being constructed. So looking at this kind of interplay of mental states, thoughts, and selfing. But acknowledging it is a process. Now, have you noticed how many times you've been through around a few different loops, a few different cycles at least, you know, maybe in the last hour, you know, maybe since you got up this morning. But think about how this seem, we seem to accept this, this is the way I am. It's the truth of the moment. Also noticing that the bigger the mental state, the bigger the narrative, the bigger the story, the bigger the thought patterns that arise. You know, if you have sort of just a little mental state, it doesn't have so much story, so much narrative around it. Also noticing that skillful states of mind actually have much less story attached to them. If you have a state of mind where you feel really quite calm and spacious, you probably notice that the tendency to proliferate in terms of thinking is much, much less. But the more unhelpful, the more unskillful the mental state or emotional state, the bigger the thought patterns will arise and feel much more sticky. So this is kind of the part of insight practice, is, is to liberate the mind. Because learning to liberate the mind is, of course, simultaneously learning to liberate the world. From our assumptions, from our labels, from our descriptions, our definitions of you are. This is actually a great gift to the world to liberate it from our particular constructions. So it is really helpful in a day of practice to really, you know, because thoughts, the nature of our thoughts, is really the clue that is asking us to look at the underlying mental state. Because you cannot just tell yourself to let go. I've always found this in my life to be a remarkably futile exercise, to shout at yourself to let go. It's really to understand that letting go also is something that is born of conditions. Just as contractedness and grasping is something that is born of the conditions of confusion and unmindfulness, letting go is something that occurs because we cultivate the conditions that allows letting go to happen all on its own. So what are some of the conditions that we cultivate? Well, the first one of them, of course, is to look at the thought patterns that are arising, to, particularly when you see they're carrying a particular continuum, a continuum. You know, you're, you're, you're building a world, you know. You look at the notice board, you know, and note, you know, you see you don't have a note, you know, Jane has a note. Why does Jane have a note? I don't have a note. You know, I should have a note. Maybe I should write a note. Maybe then I'll get a note, you know. And then you can see the continuum beginning to build. Huh? Now, when you see the continuum of a certain kind of thinking, quite frankly, it's a little heavenly messenger going off in your mind saying, look at this. Look at what is occurring. 
Look at what is occurring. And when you kind of find the willingness to, to not feed, not feed that thinking process so much, there's a little bit more of an opportunity to see the underlying state of mind. And we're really particularly seeing the underlying states of mind and their offspring that really afflict the mind. And it's important to recognize that the mind that is in a state of contractedness or aversion or craving or confusion, this is an afflicted mind. It's not bad or wrong. It is simply an afflicted mind. And the whole purpose of this practice (coughs) is to liberate the mind from affliction. So there are certain... (coughs) Excuse me. I want to really look at, you know, because what happens in the mind feels very, very personal, doesn't it? I mean, we can be quite convinced that our mind is considerably more uh, confused than anybody else's. So it can feel very personal, but I really want to look at the sort of universal mind. Because actually, you know, what happens in your processes of mind is really not really specific to you. There is something very universal about the human condition and the human dilemma. And even acknowledging that actually can help to bring so much more kindness into this rather than this is my story and my process and I have to get rid of it. There, there is something so universal in these kind of processes of affliction. Wherever there is confusion, you know, whenever there is misunderstanding, the mind will be shaped in certain ways. Not that I do it, or I excel in it. This is the nature of what the mind does. So let's look at some of these kind of streams of affliction. Um, In terms of mental states and in terms of process, that are very universal. Well, there is the craving stream, isn't there? I mean, when you look at what is going on in your mind today, just to be able to identify that. Uh You know, if if I find myself prowling with my sense doors, you know, checking my watch every two minutes, waiting for the bell to ring, you know, finding that there's not enough, a lot of restlessness, knowing, you know, what I need, what I must have, what I have to get. It's the craving stream hmm, that is being stimulated. That will produce its certain thought patterns, and the thought patterns will produce a certain idea of self in that moment. You know, I can't do this, it's too much, I'm a failure, you know, I really want to be like Joe over there, who's, you know, the ideal meditator that everybody's admiring, you know. It's the craving stream. It can be about our life, it can be about our meditation experience, it can be about food, it can be about weather. I mean, it's so important to recognize that this craving stream, this appetite, you know, really doesn't have a conscience, you know, and anything can be food for it. Anything can be food for it. Noticing how we arrive at those places of I am. Another of the kind of universal streams is the dosa or the aversive stream. Again, this is very popular. 
Um, you know, the, because there is so much food for aversion, isn't it, in a world that just simply is disobedient to our wishes, you know, and uncooperative conditions, you know, and people that we can't choose who we're with. I mean, the world is filled with the potentiality for the aversive stream to be in full flight. You know, there is so much potential food. And yet notice, notice the nature of the aversive mind. Noticing the nature of it. How it's actually sad. It's not bad, it's sad. It's interesting that in the Tibetan tradition, I spoke to a Tibetan monk, and, and he, he said that in Tibetan, you know, they, they, they only have two, had two words for emotions, sad and happy emotions. They didn't know he had so many emotions till he learned English. But, you know, aversion is very much within just that which is sad. Sad, it's not bad, it's not wrong. It's just sad because it's contracted, it's afflicted, it, it, it's so far away from where our, what is possible for us as human beings. So certainly noticing the aversive stream and noticing how much fuel there is for this underlying tendency. Hmm? You know, you go to lunch, you know, potatoes are served, the pot- you love potatoes. person in front of you takes the last potato. Well, we could spend the whole day with this, couldn't we? <laughs> we could actually spend the whole day with this. <laughs> you know, it could have accelerated, you know, I'm such an ungenerous person, you know, and every time we see that person, we don't see that person, we see the person who took the last potato, you know. It, it, my whole day is kind of colored and shaped by this. And when we look at it in retrospect, of course, it is quite amusing, but in the midst of it, oh, it is not amusing at all, you know. It is an afflicted place to be. You can feel it. But notice then how perception is then honed by that, tuned by that experience. I want experiences, and so perception is honed and shaped by this. We don't actually see the loveliness of the day, you know, we don't see the sun shining. We only see that which is going to be, can be co-opted in this, into this particular world construction. A lot of this creates a lot of busyness, you know, the busyness that we experience, and that's what we're trying to calm, to see a thought as a thought, to, to learn in a way, really be aware of what we are feeding and what we are fasting. Another of the kind of streams, it's a very universal stream, is, is the kind of fear-based stream, the anxiety-based stream, a sound in the night, or we look at someone and smile, and they don't return our smile, and we're sure we've done something wrong, and you know the world is going to fall upon our heads. But again, to really be aware of how much the fear-based stream constructs an anxious world, constructs a fearful world that we cannot rest in, how that brings agitation that feeds the fear. Really acknowledging this and and how the I is not even registering in a kind of conceptual way. But we are just afraid. We are just anxious. You can feel it in the body, feel it in the mind. 
Another of the streams is the, the view stream. The view stream. This is an amazing one, you know. You go out into anywhere in a country where you have an election going on, for example. You know, I was just in the States where they're having these elections. And, you know, the view stream is extraordinary. You know, how it divides us against them, me against you. We don't even know we have views until they're challenged. Or we meet a different one. You know, it can happen here in, in, you listen to a Dharma talk, you know, one of us says something, no, that's not right, you know, that absolutely, that's not, you, you can feel the surge of the view, you know, and how immediately, you know, that, that goes into this sort of proliferation stream of justifying, explaining, defending, attacking, you know, it, it creates the mind of the world of the moment, the mind of the moment is the world of the moment. And the last of the streams, of course, is the selfing stream, the selfing story, built moment to moment, depending upon what we identify with, dependent upon what we cling to, the selfing stream. I am, I am, I have, I need to get rid of, I need to get, I need to become, I need to not become. All that I am, being made by mind, led by mind, preceded by mind, preceded by identifying with thought. Identifying with thought. Now, we have to look at this and see, actually, this is quite optional. It's actually quite optional. These world constructs, these world contractions, these self-contractions, is actually quite optional. And the path we develop, the path we cultivate here, is certainly learning to cultivate the spaciousness and the mindfulness that can embrace this process rather than being central within the process. We're making the space bigger, cultivating the calmness and the serenity that can embrace this process rather than seizing upon it and becoming as, as the practice develops, as the inner stillness develops, of course, you, you really do begin to see how much more accessible and possible that is. You know, and it's why the Buddha gave so much emphasis to being aware of contact, being aware of the meeting of the sense door, the sensory object, and the knowing of it. The sound, the, 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 the ear, the hearing, and the sound, the mind, the thought, and the thinking, eh? the eye, the sight, and the seeing, the body, the sensation, the feeling, to really knowing, being as close as we can to these thousands, hundreds of thousands of contact moments during the day. Because as the Buddha said, you know, the world arises on contact. On contact, our world is made. That the foolish seek to pursue contact and the wise seek to understand it. Because you can see that contact and feeling are interwoven. You know, there is a sound, there is the hearing, there is a sense of that's unpleasant, perhaps. The, you know, the digger out the back, you know, the unpleasant sound, huh? There's a perception, the knowing of it. Aha, uh-huh. you know, they've got an excavator in. 
Well, pretty, how quickly on the heels of that follows craving inversion? Now, who in their right mind would schedule digging during a one-month retreat, you know? We're on a roll here, you know? We are on a roll, you know? Here we go, you know? The craving, the aversion, and we don't even see we're on a roll until we arrive at that point of becoming the I am. Oh, I am so upset with this. So upset with this. Being aware of contact, happening moment to moment, being aware of how our world is being built, being mindful at the sense doors, including the sense door of the mind. We're not always aware of contact, are we? It happens so quickly. Sometimes we're aware of feeling, pleasant, unpleasant. Certainly in Buddhist teaching, this this is the weakest link where our world does not need to be constructed place of contact and feeling because certainly there are unpleasant sounds there's unpleasant sights there's unpleasant feelings there's unpleasant thoughts it's not a problem there's many that are pleasant this is going to be part of our life always it's it's not an issue what is the issue is the underlying tendency that is stimulated the aversion the craving the delusion because this is where we start to build our world so we can with mindfulness certainly sever the link between feeling and underlying tendency. If we do that, if we can just stay with the sensation, the sight, the sound, the thought, if we can do that, not identified, knowing it, actually in that moment the underlying tendency is not triggered, it's not stimulated, we are not building a world. We're not building a world. We just know it as it is. Know it as it is. Nyana Panikotera, one of the elders in this tradition, often described this whole journey of mindfulness as to know the mind. This is the work of mindfulness, to know the mind as the mind, to know the heart as the heart. He talked about the second step in this journey is to shape the mind, to shape the mind. It is acknowledging that our mind is being shaped in every moment. The process of our minding is being shaped in every moment of our lives. Sometimes being shaped by underlying tendencies, patterns, habitual reactions. Sometimes being shaped unconsciously, but always being shaped. And what is the work of this practice is not just about being mindful. It is about shaping our experience in the moment by what we cultivate, what we value, what we bring into being. Shaping the mind of the moment with calmness, with spaciousness, with kindness, with serenity, with generosity, with equanimity. Shaping the mind of the moment. We're shaping our world of the moment. And to liberate, to liberate the mind. And what are we liberating the mind from? Everything that afflicts the mind, everything that is unhelpful, that is unconducive to freedom, unconducive to compassion. How do we do that? By knowing, by shaping, by cultivating the conditions that allow those those moments of contractedness, those moments of identification to be released. And I think it is so important, you know, because we often again use this word liberate with capital letters as some, you know, something distant on the horizon, some meditative breakthrough. 
But actually the way that often that the Buddha talked about liberation was not in that sense. He talked about liberating the moment. Liberating the moment. And of course the only moment that can be liberated is the moment that we are aware of. The moment that we are mindful of. It's almost like training the mind in liberation rather than training the mind in confusion, which is, of course, what occurs in the absence of awareness. So I just want to end just with a quote from the Buddha. It talks of, says, The thought manifests as a word. The word manifests as a deed. The deed develops into habit, and habit turns in, hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. Watch the thought and its ways with care and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. <laughs>